Two men on a mission to change the face of the organ world. Driven by their passion for the king of instruments, these two seek to share their love of the pipe organ with as many people as possible. Through their own arrangements of popular film, TV, and video game music, our hosts use their unconventional approaches to inspire pipe organ enthusiasts, both young and old, and to bring new audiences to this magnificent instrument. Together with you, they will journey through the fascinating world of the pipe organ, always eager and never afraid to break with tradition. Rob Labinsky and Johnny Salimovich are the Organ Mavericks. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Organ Mavericks podcast. I'm your host, Rob Labinsky. And I'm your other host, Johnny Salimovich. This is episode 18, and we are continuing our series of Organ Mavericks in History, and today we are going to be covering Charles Ives. Or Charles Edward Ives, which is his yes, full name. Yes, but yeah. to give him his full name. Yeah. Yes. So this is, this is kind of an, an interesting one um, as far as organists go, um, because his career as an organist, as, we're, as we will find as we kind of get into his history and his life and his career, was fairly short, um, especially in you know, regards to his life as a whole. Um, and, you know, unlike some of the other composers that we have covered, he doesn't have a huge body of work for the organ. Um, he does have a decent number of compositions to his name, but for other, um, but for other instruments. Um, and so, but, you know, his, his, um, um, I guess innovations, experimentation with music um, was really extremely forward-thinking for its time um, and really kind of defined um, a whole generation of American musicians. And since he was an organist and a a very talented um, organist at that, he definitely um, deserves a spot on, on this list of organ mavericks of history. Okay, and we're about to find out how. Uh, he's, uh, yeah, we're now about to find out how he's, uh, qualified for that. Yes, so, um, so Ives was born October 20th of 1874, um, and he died in May of, uh, 1954. I don't know why I don't have his date of death. Apparently I didn't bother to write that down. Yeah, on, okay. yes, on, uh, on a, on a certain, uh, site, the famous people, uh, Dot com. I see that his uh, date of death was May nineteenth of nineteen fifty four. Yep. Oh, maybe maybe that was May nineteen space fifty four in my notes. Okay, <laughs> that would make sense. Mm-hmm. Um. Um. So um, let's see. So he um. I've had his musical training at a at a fairly young age um, from his father George, um, who was a, a music teacher. He was a, a band leader, um, and he was an acoustician as well. Acoustician, is it acoustician? Whatever that word is. <laughs> um, 
And, um, you know, his father um, was kind of a a pioneer in experimenting with quarter tones in music. Um, If you're not familiar with what that is, if you if you take, um, you know, any any traditional classical instrument, um, but the piano is the best way to go. So if you look at the piano, there are 12 keys. Um, within an octave, and the distance between each of those keys is what's known as a half tone or a semitone. Um, and so, quarter tones are essentially, you know, so if you were to go from C to C sharp, that's a half. That's a half tone. Well, imagine halfway in between C and C sharp. Um, you know, and so there, there's a there's a whole new new level of you know of of pitches that are in there. Um, you know. I, I think you know untrained ears certainly, and even uh, even many trained ears really would just perceive the notes as being flat or sharp. Um, but um, you know, but George Ives really really played around with the idea of you know these note these you know these are actual notes in themselves, not just you know a, a deviation of you know what's traditional to traditional tonality um, as we think of it, and you know that really kind of um, influenced um, Charles, um, you know, in his studies as as we you know as he kind of went along, um, you know, so he. Um, <clears throat> So you know, so Charles had his early education from his father, um, and his his father really hoped that that he would be a uh, a classical pianist, um, you know, and you know, a co- concert concert pianist. Um, but Ives, at a very very young age, took to the organ, and that was that was kind of became his instrument. Um, you know, he absolutely loved it, and um, he he had his first job as a part time organist at the age of twelve. Wow. He beat me by three years, <laughs> um, and um, at at the age of fourteen, he was a a full time salaried organist at a church in Connecticut. He was the youngest salaried organist in the state at the time. Wow. Um. So, um, and and right around age fourteen, this is when this is when he actually first started composing. Um, and he, he he really is what would be considered a child prodigy on the organ. Um, was was very talented very early on in life. Oh wow! So um, so so you know I was you know in, in in doing the research on this I um um you know was was looking into um you know the kind of the influence of you know Charles's father, and um, I, I I came across. Um, I, I came across a, a quote from from George that was really kind of profound, um, you know. And um, he was, um, you know, he he was a, he was a huge proponent of, you know, finding music in everything. And he was um, he was commenting. And I'm gu- I'm guessing he was commenting to Charles about this. But you know, they were, you know, they were hearing this. Um, stonemason who was singing a hymn and um you know and you know this is someone who was you know very untrained in music so you know was was really singing what we would consider off key um you know and george said you know george said this of the man who was singing he said look into his face and hear the music of the ages don't pay too much attention to the sounds for if you do you may miss the music you won't get a wild heroic ride to heaven on pretty little sounds Mm mm-hmm and I just thought that was so cool because it's like, you know, you know, you typically think of, you know, 
you know, classically trained musicians, you know, looking down on people, you know, who might be singing off key, you know, and here, and here's this guy saying, no, you know, you know, he is, you know, the, the music that he is making, you know, has, has a ton of value and, you know, it, you know, is backed by, you know, a, a ton of, you know, history and all of music up to this point, you know, like he's singing, he is making music, you know, the fact that maybe our ears perceive it as wrong should not diminish the quality of the fact that, you know, he's, he's singing it, you know, obviously he's singing a hymn. So, you know, this is something, you know, that talks to a spiritual aspect of, well, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, what we would tra- traditionally define as perfect. Um, you know, and I just, I, I thought that was really profound. And I thought that's a really, really cool way to approach music. Mm-hmm. Indeed. And uh, I have also noticed that as well, even uh, with uh, people who may not be musicians uh, themselves, especially those in the congregation singing the hymns and uh, that they would tend to be singing a little bit off tune. Now I can, now with uh, listening to that quote, I fully understand, I can fully understand, you know, why he's been saying it like that. And, uh, from uh, here and then from here on out, not to judge uh, others in the future who are singing uh, off uh, key, because uh, apparently George definitely has uh, something there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and this, uh, you know, and that, and that whole philosophy really went on to be to be very influential on Charles. Um, you know, and his 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 attitude towards music really was that of, um, you know all sound has the potential to be music. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which, you know, when you look at, you know, the late 1800s, early 1900s, that's really, really forward thinking. Oh, um, yes. And, uh, real, and uh, yes, there's something I wanted to quickly comment in terms of uh, quarter tones before we uh, start off with mm-hmm. uh, Charles, uh, Charles' early life and uh, the other things, the quarter tones. Yeah, I just uh, noticed... Uh, yeah, I just noticed, especially with the uh, quarter tones, that I'm starting to see that a little more often nowadays, especially on uh, YouTube, actually, though. Apparently, quarter tones have another name, apparently, called microtones, because mm-hmm. those quarter tones apparently can... Yeah, since you mentioned uh, earlier, quarter tones would be uh, tones that are in between uh, half tones, like, for example, C and C sharp, and apparently there's a tone in between that half tone, a.k.a. quarter tone, which apparently it has another name known as a microtone. Hmm. Yeah, I believe that's uh, I believe that's the other name for it. And I've been seeing some exper- experimental <laughs> music on YouTube of people making microtones and actually having uh, uh, and even with uh, with the uh, musical equipment nowadays and other instruments being able to actually play those quarter tones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it's pretty interesting. And even uh, other cultures of uh, yeah, even at other cultures, they already have instruments that you can easily play those quarter tones. Like, uh, for instance, uh, uh, music that uh, uh, um, music that you would hear from uh, the uh, eastern countries, such as uh, India and maybe China. Chinese, China, yeah. China, mm-hmm. I believe they would use some uh, quarter tones, though, especially uh, uh, especially Indian instruments like the sitar and a few other instruments that have. Uh, that have those microtone or quarter tone capabilities, yeah. which is pretty uh pretty interesting there. 
Yeah, yeah. Eastern cultures have they they, they their, their music is developed you know differently from from Western, mm-hmm. and so their their scales are a little bit different, and so those those quarter tones actually are are kind of built into their scales yes. in some places. Yep. Um, but yeah, but there are there are Indian and Chinese instruments that you know it, play them naturally. Yep. I guess. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly what I was trying to point out. And the, as I yeah. said before, there are even uh, modern instruments uh, nowadays that can even allow you to uh, play those and make further adjustments to, you know, unlock those uh, those microtones and uh, whatnot. Though, yep. yeah, I just wanted to quickly comment on uh, the microtones and uh, how um, <laughs> how uh, yeah how George and uh, Charles uh, experimented more with that, which is uh, yep. really interesting. How they've uh, They've basically introduced quarter tones to Western music, which is now popping up more yeah. on YouTube <laughs> and the such. I had a I had a vocal professor in college who was who was describing an audition he did for a, a 20th century opera, and you know so he's bringing in all these opera singers and he's having them do you know just a very simple, um, you know vocal warm up exercises their audition. Now, typically, vocal warm-up exercises, you go by half-tone, but he was having them go up by quarter-tone. Oh, wow. Nice. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. I was like, yeah, I couldn't imagine sitting in on that audition. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, boy. You know, and, and, and the thing is, it's like our ears aren't even attuned for it. Oh, uh, yeah. Yes. All right. So I'm now going to start here with uh, talking about uh, Charles Ives' uh, life and the uh, his whole entire uh, life and career here before Rob talks <clears throat> talks about the musical uh, parts of uh, what Charles Ives has uh, done. And before I continue here, just a reminder for you listening that we will have our sources in the episode notes as usual. You will find the references, the references and our the references and resources that we use in the episode notes. And so I'm reading here from the famouspeople.com's profile page of Charles Ives here. So if you have the link open, you can follow, you can follow with me through it here if you wish. Though starting with the childhood and early life. <clears throat> so starting off with uh, Charles Ives' childhood and early life. Charles Edward Ives, of course, was born on October 20th, 1874, which we mentioned already, in Danbury, Connecticut into a well-to-do business family who made their initial money by manufacturing and selling hats. Later, they branched out into other businesses, earning distinction in life. All of them were highly educated, socially conscious, and a little eccentric. Hmm. Neat. And now Charles' father, George Edward Ives, which we talked about him earlier, was an exception. During the Civil War, he became the youngest band leader in the U.S. Army. Thereafter, he returned to Danbury to become the town's bandmaster, even through the vocation when vocation, even though the vocation was then locked, was then looked upon with little respect. Okay. All right. So now the next one being subsequently. Oh, and then it's still talking about uh, Charles' father, George, here. Subsequently, he also became the theater orchestra leader, choir director, and teacher, trained in classical music. He loved to experiment with tone clusters, polytonality, quarter tones, and acoustics. 
It was clash. It was clashes of rhythm and tone which interested him the most, and he passed down his, this trait to his son Charles. So just a, just a little interjection there to clarify um, a couple of things. If you're there, some terms in there you might not be familiar with, um, listeners. So um, tone clusters are kind of this idea of you know we typically think of chords as you know like three or four notes. Um, you know, spaced in thirds, you know, tone clusters are, hey, let's take five notes, it doesn't matter where they are, and play them, usually condensed all together. So instead of like, you know, getting a chord of, you know, C, E, and G, you're getting C, D, F, G, and A. <laughs> hmm. um, yep. Polytonality is the idea of playing in multiple keys at once. You know, we typically think, okay, this piece is in C major, or this piece is in, you know, B minor. Well, you know, in, in polytonality, it's like, okay, the violin is playing in C major, the cello is playing in E minor. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, um, quarter tones we already discussed. Um, and let's see. Uh, oh, this one, this one, that... that you were just saying didn't didn't touch on um uh what was yeah it? i mentioned um, acoustics i mentioned that uh, acoustics yeah I, the other thing i was thinking of was um polymetric uh -huh. um um which kind of like um kind of like you know polytonal is the idea that like okay you know one instrument is playing in you know four four time whereas you know this other one is over here playing in seven eight wow <laughs> You know, at the same time. So, you know, the emphasis are the are different. So Interesting. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So Charles' mother, Mary Parmalee, was a, also a unique woman. She used to whistle when she went about doing child uh when she was as she went about doing household chores. The couple had two sons. While Char Charles inherited his father's musical talent, his younger brother Joseph Moss Ives became a lawyer. Now that's an interesting uh, that's an interesting contrast there. Mm. Yep. And so the next point, Charles had his first lesson in music from his father. As the story goes, he was introduced to the art through an interesting accident. One day, when he was five years old, his father came home to find him banging the piano keys with drum parts using his fists. Oh man. That's pretty. That's pretty funny. <laughs> the 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 best though is his father's reaction to it. Oh, <laughs> oh wow! George must have sensed some kind of innovative skill in this. Therefore, instead of scolding him, he told him encouragingly, "It's all right to do that, Charles, if you know what you're doing." And then and then sent him to have his first lessons in drums. <laughs> okay. I I I I thought that I, I came across that at another site as well, and I thought that was I just thought that was fascinating. It's like, yeah, you know, you normally come home, here's the kid banging away on the piano. You're like, no, don't do that. And the father was like, no. Okay, if you understand, you know, how to make music, then you can do whatever you want. And you know, and then and again, you know, that's you know, just looking at that father's you know ideas of music, it's like, yeah, you know, you can. You know, any, anything can be music, and you know, and it's that whole if you know what the rules are, then you can break them. Mm hmm. Exactly. And so, sometime now, he began to receive piano lessons from his father and soon became proficient in it. Later, as he was introduced to organ, he became more interested in that. 
By the age of 12, he began to play the organ for church services at Danbury Baptist Church. And so, and so this was where he became interested in the, the organ. And of course, uh, this is uh, one of the ways how he's uh, going to become an organ uh, maverick, as we're soon going to find out later on. George, his father, had a unique style of teaching. He would often make Charles sit at the town square as he and other band leaders played the band played the band there listening to different bands being played simultaneously charles soon developed a unique musical sense which helped him to experiment in bitonal and polytonal harmonization charles started composing hymns and songs for church services from the age of 13 at 14, he was appointed as the as a church organist on salary, which we did mention earlier. Though at 17, he composed Variation on America, an arrangement of of traditional My Country, Tis of Thee, for 4th of July celebration in the following year. Which is probably his most famous organ composition. Mm-hmm. All right, and so such intense involvement with music also had its cons. He soon began to feel isolated from his friends, and to counter that, he threw himself into sports. He was a great baseball player and found composing a difficult piece like Variation on America as much fun as playing baseball. Hmm. In 1893, the family moved to New Haven, Connecticut. Here, he was enrolled at Hopkins Grammar School a college preparation day institution. Here, too, he continued playing baseball along with studying music and captained the school's baseball team. Nice. In September 1894, Charles Ives entered the Yale University. Here, he studied organ with Dudley Buck and composition with Horatio Parker, learning the basics of composition such as form, orchestration, counterpoint, and harmony from him. Initially, he wrote church music in a choral-style manner similar to Parker, but when his father passed away on November 4th, he restarted experimenting with harmony and counterpoint, something which Parker did not appreciate. Although disgruntledly, he therefore toned down his music and followed the traditional rules of, for his teacher. Yeah, so um, a couple of uh, interesting things I came across, you know, when he... Um he, when he first goes to Yale, um, apparently this um, the 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 first composition he presented to that I've presented to Parker um, was a um, was a four part fugue with all four parts in different keys starting simultaneously. Wow! <laughs> oh wow! Wow! So. So, Needless to say, Parker was like, what the heck is this? <laughs> <laughs> so what uh, Charles had in mind with that fugue was that four different musicians play that fugue at the same time? You know, I don't I don't have written down what instrument it was for. Um, that would be my guess, though, is it was for would be for four musicians. <laughs> mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. 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 But his, his teacher was none too pleased about that. And so... Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I was kind of like, all right, all right, in the traditional style, I'll dollapease you. <laughs> um, yep. Um, and um, 
Yeah, so he he composed the like you know if you come across any Ives that is like in a you know that 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 sounds normal, it came out of this period. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Sometime in his freshman year, he became the organist of Center Church in New Haven. Concurrently, he took equal interest in games and played in he and played on the varsity American football team. Later, he also became a member of He Boyle. Delta Kappa Epsilon, Phi Chapter, Wolf's Head Society, and Ivy Committee. So I guess uh, Charles I Charles Ives here was also a sorority. Uh, I, was, I was trying I, to make. I don't think I don't, I don't I don't think he would have been a fr- uh, sorority member. I think he might have been a fraternity member. Frater- fraternity <laughs> member. That's the word. So that's pretty interesting to see that Charles Ives was also a fraternity member here. Huh? Neat. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in 1898, Ives wrote his Symphony No. 1 in D minor as his senior thesis under Parker's supervision. In the same year, he graduated from Yale and moved to New York. March number 6 and Ye- March number 6 and The Bells of Yale are some of his popular works of this period. And uh that would be the end of uh of Charles Ives' uh, ch- childhood and early life segment here on the on the famous people side here, and now I'm moving on to the career. And so, now talking about uh, Charles Charles Ives' career here. On graduating from Yale, Charles Ives first thought of pursuing a career in composition, but remembering Parker's reaction on his innovations, he realized that he could not make a living by writing the kind of music he wanted to. Moreover, there were fewer open there were fewer opening for composers than for performers, and uh, that is definitely understandable how that can uh, be, and that even uh, relates to uh, that even can relate to today. That uh, it's that uh, nowadays initially it would not really be possible to make a you know to make a living out of mostly what we love to do. Hence, why we need to take on uh, take on uh, applying for applying for uh, di- applying for different jobs in order to sustain what we you know love to do to begin with for instance as of today as of the time we're recording uh, this podcast uh, we're recording this podcast uh, during uh, the uh, the covid-19 pan- pandemic for context for those of you listening in the future <clears throat> as of the recording of this podcast uh, as the uh, as of the recording of this as the the time that we're recording this podcast i'm currently uh, I'm currently a a construction a construction laborer, which I already have listed on my LinkedIn profile, and the such. And uh, yes, the times uh, were pretty challenging. Uh, were pretty challenging for this uh, kind of a time, as most uh, people were laid off from their jobs due to this pandemic. And uh, I was uh, one of those that was affected, though I was fortunate enough to find another job, which was, of course, a construction laborer. And although it doesn't sound, uh, even though it doesn't sound great, <clears throat> the the work that gets put into it can be uh, can be pretty rewarding, especially with uh, the other workers there, and uh, the such. Though <clears throat> I personally don't really uh, like that kind of a work, but if there's a need for that kind of a work and I have an experience for that kind of work, I will not mind doing that, and and uh, definitely having the openness to work on to work on several different jobs while pursuing the things that you love to do is definitely uh, something to keep in mind because if you have a very limited mindset that you're not going to try and sustain yourself with other 
jobs and yet you try to try to do something that you love to do without something else to sustain yourself that's a very risky position you're putting it yourself into so yeah i just wanted to make that point real quick <clears throat> okay yeah because i could definitely relate to uh, this uh to this uh, certain part of uh, charles ives part that he wanted to that he wanted to try and make a living off of compositions though he's uh, starting though i you yeah, assume going to see uh, more of what he's uh yeah i'm going to continue reading from here as to <clears throat> what as to how he's uh, going to how, as to how he's going to sustain himself as a composer and so he then joined the mutual life insurance company as a clerk earning five dollars a week and before i continue on with that point i'm gonna want to mention something in regards to what five dollars would be from 1899 to today's inflation rates apparently five dollars in five us dollars in 1899 in 1899 or 18 1898 i don't remember which year was that apparently in today's in today's money charles ives would be earning about 155 us dollars per uh, 155 us dollars per week hmm 155 US per week. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So he wasn't making a ton of money. Yeah, he wasn't. <laughs> yes. Basically, he wasn't making much money at the time. Like, that wasn't much, though. <clears throat> yeah, it definitely wasn't uh, much. And thus, uh, later on, later on, when inflation rates got up, uh, quality of life got better. But that's besides the point. Now, continuing from what I was reading from him, earning $5... Oh, wait a minute, $5 per week. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, it's definitely not much, especially comparing it in today's, uh, today, with today's inflation. Simultaneously, he took up employment as a part-time organist and choir director at the First Presbyterian Church in Bloomingfield, New Jersey, moving to Central Presbyterian Church in New York in the following year. So, yeah, Charles was definitely keeping himself pretty busy. By uh, not only have not only being a clerk but also a part-time organist, uh, thus uh, allowing him to earn some extra income as a part-time organist and choir director. And so, in 1899, Ives left MLI Company to join Charles H. Raymond and Co., where he remained employed until 19 until 1906. In private, he continued to work on music, writing new scores as well as improving on his existing works such as String Quartet No. 1 from 1897 till 1902 and Symphony No. 1 from 1898 till 1901. <clears throat> Among his fresh works, Symphony No. 2 from 1899 till 1902, Central Park in Dark, 1906, and The Unanswered Question, 1906 again, are the most significant. Like many of Ives' work, the last two pieces remained unknown until they were performed much later in 1946. When Charles H. Raymond and Co. closed down in 1906, Charles teamed up with his friend Julian Myrick to form their own insurance agency. In 1907, they established Ives and Co., which was later renamed as Ives and Myrick. Within a short period, it became very successful. And that's pretty good to hear. As in as an insurance executive and actuary, Ives showed his acumen by structuring life insurance packages for 
his well-to-do clients. From this evolved the modern practice of estate planning. Their agency was also the first to open a school for insurance agents. For that purpose, he wrote a number of books and pamphlets. Wow. Nice. He did a lot there. The Amount to Carry and How to Carry It, published in 1912, is possibly the first of the lot. It has been revised and reprinted several times. His Life Assurance with Relation to Inheritance Tax, published in 1918, was another milestone of his insurance career. From the point of view of music, too, the period between 1910 and 1918 have been very productive. The Piano Sonata No. 2, Concord, Massachusetts, 1840-1860, Holiday Symphony, Three Places in New England, Robert Browning Overture, Symphony No. 4, etc. are some of the more popular works of this period. And oh boy, during uh, his uh, career, he's definitely been keeping himself pretty productive there. My goodness. And so, moving on to the illness and later years of his life. Working in the office during the day and writing music at night or over the weekend affected his health. Oh boy. In 1918, he became seriously ill and sustained cardiac damage. Slowly, he began to reduce his business activities. He also began composing less and less, but kept on revising his existing works. In 1919, he started working on orchestral set number three, but in 1926, he left it incomplete. According to his wife, one day in 1927, he came down with tears in his eyes, saying that he could not compose anymore. Ah, ouch, that sounds pretty sad. Indeed, he tried to work on Universal Symphony, but abandoned it in 1928 because he could not complete it. In 1930, he retired from his insurance business so that he could devote more time to his music, but it did not help. Although he could not create anything new, in the 1930s was important from another aspect. Even though during that period, the, in the early 1930s, was the Great Depression. So he was definitely living through the Great Depression at that time. And uh, we're kind of, well, yeah, the whole COVID-19 pandemic is sort of kind of feeling like that, but probably not, but probably not to that extent. Okay, and so, the 19, and so, although he could not create anything new, the 1930s was important from another aspect. It was during this decade that Nicholas Slominski first performed Ives' three places in New England, both in the USA and Europe. It kindled an interest in his work, which were so far largely neglected, which were so far largely neglected. His reputation was further established when in 1939 pianist John Kirkpatrick premiered his concert, premiered his Concord Sonata at the New York Town Hall. It led to favorable commentary in the in the major New York papers. Ives gained the final recognition when in 1946 Lou Silver Harrison conducted the premiere of the Symphony Number no. 3. The camp meeting. It earned Charles Ives the the Pulitzer Prize for music and the accompanying felicitation. 
And so there was another point uh, in the, the later life that I did not get to see within this <clears throat> page, which was uh, how Charles Ives uh, passed with how Charles Ives uh, passed away and the such. Before we move on to his uh, musical, before we move on to his musical uh, contributions, and so the first two points for personal life and legacy. It says here, on June 9th, 1908, Charles Ives married Harmony Twitchell. She was the sister of one of his friends and was a trained nurse. The couple had an adopted daughter named Edith Osborne. Ives died on May 19th, 1954, which we mentioned earlier. Though, however, he died from a stroke in New York City. He was then 79 years old and was survived by his wife and daughter. Okay, and so we are yet to speak about more of uh, Charles Ives' musical contributions. And so uh, what do you have for us? Yes, so um, you know, so so we talked about you know his early his early life being influenced heavily by his father, um, you know, and then his um, his professors at Yale. Um, although you know it, it, it's interesting. It, um, I, I I almost want to say you know his his composition professor was was a detriment to him, which I, I don't think is the case. You know he was, you know um, Parker was um, very classically minded, obviously you know um, you know kind of rooted in you know the the traditional ideas of harmony and tonality and things like that. You know whereas Ives was pushing the envelope everywhere he can. Um, you know, but I think that I, I think that I've learned a lot. Um, you know about form, about convention um, from Parker, and I think I think that kind of helped shaped his composing. Um, you know, so, so, something that I came across was you know he um, you know I, I, I essentially took on the, uh, the he took on the European conventions that he liked <laughs> um, and just ignored the rest. So <laughs> nice. Um, you know, but I, I you know, I, I'm sure that, you know, he, he took quite a lot from that, you know, but as, you know, as I said before, you know, he, he took his first piece and his teacher was like, um, no, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, so I was kind of, you know, kind of toned back his, his experimental wild side, um, during his college years. Um, um, yeah, you know, but then, you know, he, um, you know, you know, after leaving there, you know, really continued to, you know, to experiment, you know, with, with all the, the different things that we've talked about. Um, he, um, you know, uh, one of the things I found interesting with, um, you know, his compositions, you know, and I know we talked about them a little bit, you know, and going through his life, you know, but what, one thing that kind of jumps out is, you know, that most of the things that he wrote were written before 1915. Um, you know, and considering that he lived, you know, another almost another forty years beyond that, you know, it's you know, it, it's I think I think it's very interesting, um, you know, the, the the body of work that he had, um, you know, was was all composed at a fairly young age, um, you know, and in particular, um, if I can find it in my notes, um, yeah, all of his organ music was finished before um, eighteen ninety seven. Um, he was and he was only twenty three years old at that point wow um um and i i i do wonder because he continued to be an organist until uh 1902 and so i do wonder i know that there's a lot of his stuff that was lost um 
typically some of his more traditional stuff, I think, was 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 kind of lost in there. So I, you know, I'm sure that he probably continued to, you know, to compose and improvise, um, you know, and things like that, you know. But we, you know, that the, the music that we have that survived, you know, was all, you know, pre 1897. Um, when you look at um, the um, you know, the, the influences on him, you know, um, in terms of like, you know, what he drew from, he drew, uh, he drew really, really heavily from American culture. Um, you know, so American folk songs, revival hymns, um, barn dances, you know, and things like that, you know, you can find, I mean, you can find those, you know, um, you know, sprinkled throughout all of his compositions. Um, you know, some of them are even based on that. Um, you know, you look at the, you know, his his organ piece, the Variations on America. Um, you know, that's you know <laughs> very a, a very American tune. Um, you know, and is you know the basis for the entire composition there. Um, I found this was this was interesting. You know, we talked about you know his his polytonality and you know pieces that were in. Um, uh, you know, every instrument playing a, a, a different key. So in 1893, 1894, he wrote a piece called um, Song of Harvest Season. Um, and I do wonder, because I think this was from a couple different sources, so I wonder if this wasn't the, um, the, the piece that he presented to Parker, but it was for voice, trumpet, violin, and organ, which in itself is a fascinating com- combination of instruments. Um, yeah, every single, every single instrument was playing in a different key. <laughs> wow. So, um, yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, as, as, you know, as we said before, you know, he really, he really pushed the, the conventions of the day and, you know, and, and played with, you know, played with, you know, what the definition of music was. You know, up to this point, you know, you have the, you know, you have the, the European model, you know, this very straightforward, you know, very structured harmony, um, tonality and things like that. And, you know, and here we go. Well, why can't you play in two keys at once? I have my own opinions as to why. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, I, I always, I, I always like to joke with people. I, cause I, I play his variations on America and um, he has two he has two bitonal interludes in there, and they're weird. <laughs> oh, they're so weird. Um, and and as so I always comment to people when they're like, "Ah, oh, that was a, that was an interesting piece you played today. What was with that one section?" I say, "Yeah, that that was the bitonal thing." I was like, "I I I, I always amazed, you know, that you know the the story is, you know, and you know, and as we kind of alluded, the, the story I had heard up to this point was, you know, he was walking down the street one day and he heard two different bands practicing. Apparently, his father put him in that situation, so, um, you know, but I I'm just astounded that anyone could hear. Oh, okay, this band's playing. This piece over here, this march in six eight and E flat, and this one's over here playing in two four, and they're in you know D major, and go, huh? That sounds good. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh man. It, to to each his own, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Perhaps um, yes. Though you know, yeah, it can also be understandable from that context uh, how Charles Ives can be considered an organ maverick, especially with definitely. his variations on America. Especially, yes. Yep. So, so I do want to touch specifically on a few of his organ pieces. Um, 
So there, there are there are two works out there. Um, there's a, a canzonetta and then a uh, a fugue in C minor, and um, these these pieces come across as traditional. They're 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 very formal. They're very classical, you could say, um, and it's it's believed that they were probably written for his his professor at Yale. Um, because as you start to look into his, um, some of his other compositions, um, you see that, you know, he's, he's really kind of pushing the limits on what you can do. Um, so one of the, one of the, the pieces that he had, um, was a, (laughs) I, I saw it referred to as a parody on the tune, um, uh, I can't read my handwriting. I think that says Bethany. Yes, Bethany, um, which is the tune "Nearer My God to Thee," uh-huh. um, and so you know he he you know improvised on it, played around with it, um, you know did things that um, may not have been, shall we say, church approved. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so so that that was one of the the pieces that he had. Um, a, another one of his organ works that is well known is his. Um, um, I'm gonna say it's the prelude. I gotta look this up. Hang on. Okay, so I so I found it. It's the, it's the organ prelude on Adeste Fidelis, which apparently was written in 1903. So clearly, the source that I came across that said all his organ music was composed before 1897 was wrong. Some someone is wrong here. <laughs> Strange. Um. Anyway, um, so yes, so this uh, this prelude on Adeste Fidelis, which of course is um, O Come All Ye Faithful, the the very popular Christmas Advent hymn, Christmas hymn. Yep. Um, um, and it's really kind of this dark, kind of somber take on what is a fairly upbeat hymn. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so it's really kind of, you know, pushing the conventions of, okay, hey, this is what we expect from this hymn. I'm going to give you the complete opposite. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> nice. Um, you know, and, and then, of course, you know, his his variations on America, um, you know, which, you know, we listen to, and it sounds fairly normal, except for the bitonal interludes. Mm-hmm. Um you know, but you know, at the time it was it was very edgy. It was very dissonant. It was it was almost unsettling to listen to, um, hmm. you know, by by the standards of the day. Especially when you consider, you know, it was essentially church music. Um, you know, it was written for the organ. It was going to be primarily played in churches, um, and um, yeah. But I mean, it's it's you know, it's really interesting to see you know what all he did. Um, you know, I, I, w- I was seeing something, you know, his, um, um, yeah, the, uh, the, the camp meeting, you know, um, you know, kind of draw, draw, drew on, you know, those, um, you know, the, those folk songs. Um, I feel like there was one thing that he did that was like a circus march. I can't find it right hmm. now. Um, but, um. You know, this, oh, there it is. Uh, March for Piano, the circus band. Um, one of the variations. I, I, I always think of. You know, this is this is this is the kind of you know music that you would hear from like uh, a circus calliope. Um, you know, in the way that it's written, in the way that it's intended to be registered. Uh, you know, I always kind of think it has that circus feel. Um, you know, and there's just there's such a there's such a range in you know in the 
in, in the, the, the different styles of the variations. Really, really cool to listen to. Um, you know, de- definitely very forward thinking, definitely pushing the limits of the organ. My, my absolute favorite is the, the final variation, which has truly a, a virtuosic pedal line and has one of my favorite tempo markings in all of music as fast as the pedals can go. Oh, wow. Nice. <laughs> like, uh, how fast are we talking here? 16th, 30 seconds? So there are the, the it's primarily 8th and 16th. Okay. Um, I believe the edition that I have gives a tempo, uh, gives a suggested tempo marking of quarter note equals 120. Mm-hmm. That's typical. Those are those are some fast pedal notes. Oh wow! Oh, <laughs> I don't boy. think I've ever quite gotten it there. Um, but yeah, um, you know, but but you know, the 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 thing to remember is, you know, this was um, very discordant music to to contemporary ears, especially when you consider, you know, that it was, you know. Um, Mostly heard by churchgoers, um, you know, it's probably something that made them go, "What is the organist playing?" <laughs> <laughs> um, I I had heard a I had heard a story um, when I was younger that he was actually fired from one of his church jobs because of how controversial his playing was. Wow. Um, but in, in doing the research, I couldn't find anything to corroborate that, um, you know. And it seems like being fired from an organist position for being too eccentric is something that would kind of jump out in a biography. So, mm-hmm. um, the uh, the person I heard that from must have been um, must have been mistaken. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and and one of the things that I did find, you know, is all uh, you know, a lot of his music was not well received by his contemporaries. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which I, I think you find is the case, you know, for people who, who really try to, to push the envelope with organ music. Um, yep. You know, but when I look at, you know, I, I look at, you know, some 20th century, even early 21st century organ music, um, you know, and seeing what people are doing with just, you know, completely completely turning tonality on its head and, you know, what's defined as traditional and, you know, what works um you know you know you look back and it really it really stems back to the work you know that Ives and and, and others um you know we're going to we're going to get into other other organists in this series you know that will that will you know that will look at how they kind of turn traditional tonality on its head mm-hmm. um you know but Ives was you know kind of at the forefront of of this movement of you know of of challenging the ideas of traditional tonality um you know, you know, in the, in the last episode, we looked at Vidor and we looked at, you know, him in challenging, you know, the conventions of what's an organ piece, what can you do on an organ, you know, and saying, okay, well, this is what we used to be able to do, but the instrument's so much better, so now this is what we can do, you know. Yep. Ives going, okay, you know, this is this is the this is the foundation, you know, this is everything that's come before. Let's do something new. Let's see what else we can do. What can what can we make music? How can we make music in a different way and you know and make it fresh and make it you know interesting, um, you know and in so that way you know, yes you know across the board as a musician you know he he pushed the envelope, you know with that, um, you know but he did it for the organ world as well, um, you know and I'll I'll be very curious you know as we look at. 
Um, you know, I, I was thinking today about, you know, other, other organist for the series, um, you know, not, not, not to tip our hands completely here, but, you know, like looking at, um, Messian, um, Olivier Messian, a French composer, um, and a 20, 20th, 21st century, um, um, composer Naji Hakim, who really, really kind of pushed the, the limits of tonality. And I'll be very curious to see, you know, if, if Ives was an influence on that as we're, as we go forward. Mm. But yeah, definitely, you know, de- definitely a revolutionary, definitely an organ maverick. Oh, yes. Yep. Especially with all that taken into context. Yeah. I can fully understand now how Charles Ives can be considered an organ maverick and how he qualifies as one. Yep. That is very, uh, yeah, that is a very good, uh, you know, summary to, yep. Yeah. Very good way to put that. I can definitely uh, count uh, Charles Ives as a as an official organ maverick from here. Yeah. Yes. You know, it, you know, th- thinking about this, it, 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 you know, it's interesting the the career path he took, um, you know, in going to insurance, you know, full time, and eventually giving up, you know, being a, being an organist. Um, I, I'd be very I'd be very interested to, you know, to. You know that you know. Obviously, there's no way to do this. You know, but it would be interesting to see where he would have gone had he chosen to be a full-time musician instead. You know, mm-hmm. and what what other what other ideas he might have come up with. So, yeah. you know, very interesting. You know, but in you know, in in a relatively you know short career as a musician, you know, really did a lot um, for music and for the organ. Mm-hmm. He did. And so to follow up with that, there's some more of his legacy that we're yet to touch on here, which I will continue reading from his personal life and legacy from the famous people. The other points that I haven't mentioned yet. Apparently, Charles Ives was independently rich, and on uh, his wife's uh, on his, and on her death, uh, Harmony Ives, which is Charles Ives' wife, Harmony Ives bequeathed the royalties from his music. To the Academy, to the American Academy of Arts and Letters of the Charles Ives Prize. Initially, it was consisted of six scholarships of seven thousand five hundred dollars and two fellowships of fifteen thousand dollars awarded annually to young composers. Wow, that's uh, yeah, that's definitely some phila- uh, philanthropy there. That uh, mm. that uh, they did there, which is really neat. Later in the Amer- in the American Academy of Arts and Letters established and Letters established the Charles Ives Living of two thousand of two hundred thousand dollars and the Charles Ives Opera Prize of fifty thousand dollars in his memory. The house that he was born in Danbury, Connecticut, was listed on the National Register of Historic Places in nineteen seventy six. Today, Ives' birthplace is known as the Danbury Museum and Historical Society. Wow, that is quite an honor for yeah for such a prominent uh, for such a prominent organ maverick that uh, people are willing to keep his legacy alive for what he did. That is very commendable. Yep, very commendable there. And uh, apparently, there's also some some uh, fun trivia. <laughs> Uh, that that is also here on the site here. I'm gonna quickly read through them for the for the fun of it. When in 1974, Ives received the Perlitzer Prize for Music, 
1947. 1947. I don't know how I read that. <laughs> okay, so when in 1947, Ives received the Pulitzer Prize for Music, he gave away the prize money, saying prizes are for boys and I'm all grown up. <laughs> Conductor Lou Harrison received half of it. It is not known who received the other half. And uh, that is quite interesting why uh, Ives would be giving away his prize money, though in context, it would make sense since he was involved in the insurance uh, in the, was that he was involved in the insurance yeah, he was involved in the insurance uh, industry so that would make sense uh, you know why he did that and so the next one Ives had also financed many other struggling composers in secret uh-huh this is neat for example Nicholas Slominski later said that Ives had supported him throughout his career now that wow that is very commendable there. Yeah, I'm yeah, I yeah, I have a lot more respect for Charles Ives now with the philanthropy that he that he did. That is very commendable to him. Although music was his first love, he was equally good at sports. According to one of his coaches in Yule, it was a crying shame that he spent so much time on music, otherwise he would have become a champion sprinter. Uh, what can you do with that if uh, Charles really wanted to focus more on music just you know let him if he's well even though it, he did have a sort of, even though he did have an excuse to you know play some sports to get to know other people more to get more socially involved hey if he has a cer- if he has a cer- certain in- interest in music for example that he's a lot more passionate about you can't really, you know, change his mind on that. Only he can <laughs> change his mind on that. But of course, uh, it's already, uh, it's already a historical. It's already a part of uh, history, and thus, of course, Charles never changed his mind <laughs> with so much that he did, and uh, as such. And there's a lot more. The there's a, there's some more uh, info about him that you can find on the page that I will not uh, that I will not mention here. That you can. The you Mavericks can read about it for yourselves. And uh, so, wow, my goodness. Charles, uh, yeah. Wow, I, I'm i just uh, astonished by uh, how much uh, Charles Ives has done, like, in general. As, as for what he did for the organ world in general, and even as a... And even for some of the philanthropy that he did. Like... Yeah, that is very, again, I said it a few times already, that it was very commendable of him, and I have a lot more respect for, you know, Charles Ives. <clears throat> a lot more respect for Charles Ives, as uh, a lot, as a, and also pretty inspirational, too, that uh, that uh, anything can be, uh, that anything can certainly be possible as long as you never give up on it. Yep, he's definitely very inspirational there. Yep. And so, fellow Mavericks, with all of this being said, Charles Ives is definitely considered as an organ maverick on our books, especially with uh, what we've already discussed about in the past episode and how he has certainly qualified in our bo- in our books as an organ maverick and what he did in general with a very inspirational and commendable uh, life that he had. And much respect for him, too. And so, to con- and so, uh, on that note, we want to remind you, uh, fellow Mavericks, that we do have an official Twitter account now. You can easily find us at Organ Podcast. 
Again, when you look when you search us up on Twitter, it is at Organ Podcast. It can't get more simpler than that when we made our own Twitter account. On the Twitter account, you'll be able to see whenever we post new episodes and even updates on uh, the progress of recording new episodes so that you're not uh, left in the dark. <clears throat> so that you're not left in the dark there. And so uh, for the email. And of course, you know, we, we you can also email us. <laughs> Words are hard. Um, uh, you, you, we, you know, we would love to, we'd love to hear feedback from you, um, you know, either on Twitter or email. Um, you know, so you can email us organmavericks um, at gmail.com. Um, you know, if you have any, any, anything you'd like to add, you know, to what we've talked about today, if you have any idea for um, future episodes, you know, we would love to hear that from you. So send us an email, send us a tweet, um, but we would like to hear from you guys. And so, Organ Mavericks, that concludes this episode, episode 18 on the Organ Mavericks of History and Charles Ives. And we'll see you next time.